Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're bringing you one of our favorite shows from earlier this year. We called it Lifetime Achievement, and in it we featured older Washingtonians who are leaving a lasting mark on the D.C. area and beyond. So over the next hour, we'll hear once more from the dancer who found her calling helping psychiatric patients at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. We'll hum along with the harmonica player who's been making music for 88 years. And we'll meet the man who became the very first African-American director of the National Park Service. First, though, if you're listening right now, I'm going to assume you're a big fan of radio. But if ever you have the TV on and you're flipping through the channels, and you happen to be in Northern Virginia, then you might come across this. Uh, Welcome to Conversations with Rich. I'm Rich Misabney. Or this. We'll be back with our News for Seniors file right after we hear from Rich Misabney and his reviews. Hey, Rich. Rich. Thank you, boys. Thank you. Thank you. Or even this. Hello, and welcome to Rich's Place. I'm Rich Misabney. About a week ago or so, uh, you know, I'm an oyster nut. People who know me. And... uh, I heard about uh, Rappahannock uh, Oyster Company. It's out in, off New York Avenue, Northeast 5th Street. And uh, so I ventured out there. For more than 25 years, Rich Misabney has been gracing television screens across northern Virginia with his local cable shows. On Rich's Place, his cooking program on Fairfax Public Access, he was recently whipping up grilled oysters and crab cakes with the general manager of Rappahannock Oyster Company, Jean-Paul Sabatier. Jean-Paul Sabatier. I like to say your name. I I like to say my name, too. I bet you do. (laughs) Sabatier. It's a a famous person name. Hopefully I'll be famous one day. Oh, okay. Be able to use it. All right, so Jean-Paul is kind of joking around here, but in all seriousness, when it comes to famous people, 77-year-old Rich Misabney is no stranger. I interviewed a lot of big people, Carol Channing, Phyllis Diller, Nelson Eddy, and just so many others, so many others. It all began back in 1961. April 61. Don't ask me why I remember April. About seven years after Rich had moved to Arlington, Virginia from his native Brooklyn, New York. You still have a bit of that Brooklyn accent. Everybody tells me that, and I can't understand it after 60 years. So Rich was in his mid-20s, and he was looking for a job. And he ventured to the offices of the Northern Virginia Sun newspaper. Little did he know, he was about to have his big break. I walked in the door, and some guy coming out the door, he says to me, Kid, do you know showbiz? Yeah, I know showbiz. I didn't know showbiz. So he takes me by the hand and walks me, oh, several feet over to a guy named Ed Campbell, who was a boss there. And he says, Ed, I'm leaving. I'm going back to New York. First, that Ed ever heard of that, that he's leaving town. So he was stuck. So Ed looked at me and says, can you go to the Shore Motel? That was a big, big place, a big venue in town. Can you go to the Shore Motel tonight? and interview Sophie Tucker, uh, which was the last of the Red Hot Mamas. You know, she was big. And uh, I said, what do you think I said? Sure. So we go there. They they had a sit-down dinner, and, and there was the three important people. The big paper then, you may know, was the Evening Star, then the Washington Post, and then there was the Daily News tabloid, Scripps Howard paper. And then this kid from Brooklyn was there too. So Sophie Tucker... She came to the table and put her her fists on her sides like this, and she says, okay, I'm going to have a corned beef and sandwich with a bottle of beer. Where's Rich Misabney? And I tell you, I almost want to slide under the table. You know, who the hell am I to be with her, you know? She invited me up to her room, and we had corned beef sandwiches and Budweiser beer, I remember, and she was a two-fisted babe. 
And then I reviewed the show, too. So that's the way it got started. And I understand that your big break with television, that was also kind of a luck story. It was kind of a serendipitous, almost accidental thing. Can you tell us that story? Oh, yeah. But for television, it was about 30 years ago. Every year in Arlington, they have a county fair. And uh, one time, uh, I was walking around, and in those days, uh, I had black, wavy hair. Guess, can you picture this? Rebecca, black, wavy hair, and I didn't look so bad. I'm looking for a compliment. Come on, come on. Give me some. You something. look great. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> but anyway, so there was a monitor there. And I was walking by, and the guy says, gee, you look good on the screen. Do you, uh, do, you do television, something like that? And I says, he said, do you, you understand uh, about interviews and whatever it is? I says, yeah. So I said, I'll go Wednesday. Uh, we're taping this thing Wednesday, and I'm going tonight as a half an hour, 30 years, to the Arlington Cable Station. The same guy who's the boss there, Don Hammond, he's the one head of the Arlington Weekly News. So I went up to see Don Hammond. Uh, he wasn't too impressed. He, he said, okay, get back to me in a couple of weeks. You know, I figured that's dead. And then some guy comes running out of the control room, and he says, Don, what's his name? Didn't show up. And we got a six minutes. It's exactly what he said. Six minutes, we got to do something with. So Don then turned to me. Can you do six minutes? So he said, what do you want to talk about? And I always liked restaurants, you know. And so I says, how about restaurants in Northern Virginia? And I did it all off the top of my head. And he said, uh, well, come back next week. So I've been coming back next week f for the last 30 years. See, in those days, everybody wasn't a critic like today. Almost everybody I meet is a reviewer or something or other. It wasn't that way then. There was just a few of us, and I was one of them. And uh, when I was at the Sun, and I'd get, uh, according to the switchboard operator, you know, where you pull the thing out of the, out of the wall, you know, and stick it in. That's the way it was. She came over to me. Her name was Billy Fatally. Uh, see, I had a column at sundown, in North Virginia Sun, at sundown with Richard J. Misabney. She said, what's your middle name? I said, Joseph. She said, okay, from now on, you're Dick Joseph. So... I was known around town as Dick Joseph, and I couldn't go to a restaurant or a theater thing where people didn't know me. I was also on WAVA radio, by the way, which I had a show there at about the same time as with The Sun, Inside Showbiz with Dick Joseph. And after the North Virginia Sun, you know, it, there was some wealthy man in our community who wanted to start up a magazine. That was before Washingtonian, Playtime Washington. 1963, I think, and uh, he wanted me to become the entertainment editor and do the same thing with restaurant and theater columns. I did that for maybe, I don't know, three years. Gee, you know, just thinking of those days, I'm getting awfully nostalgic about this, you know. I don't know, of course, I was younger or whatever it was, but people were more accessible. Uh, I could see anybody I wanted. Uh, you know, I can't today. Well, but you've also interviewed, what did you say, 4,000 people yes. in 30 years? Yes. Yeah, it might be over that, but 4,000 is a nice figure. <laughs> I got good memories. I, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it. You know, I'm lucky to be doing what I'm doing. That was TV host, reviewer, and interviewer Rich Masabney. You can catch Rich on a handful of TV stations on a handful of days at a handful of times. We have links to all of them on our website, metroconnection.org. 
next lifetime achiever says she too found her calling in the early 1960s when a friend told her about something new happening at a psychiatric hospital in D.C. 80-year-old Sharon Chaiklin says she's always loved to dance, but when she made that trip to the nation's capital, everything changed. Jacob Benston brings us her story. In 1964, Sharon Chaiklin first made the trip down from her home in Baltimore to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in southeast Washington. St. Elizabeth's was a large federal prison. It had like 5,000 people. Hospital, I'm sorry. (laughs) But um, yes, it felt like a prison because, uh, of course, you had keys and you locked and unlocked gates and doors wherever you went. Chaiklin came to St. Elizabeth's to meet a woman named Marion Chase. Chase was a professional dancer who, during World War II, began working with soldiers returning from battle with psychological scars. Chase discovered dance could be not just entertainment, but therapy. Nobody else around spoke about it or understood it. But doctors and psychiatrists took note of Chase's success with patients. In 1942, she was invited to work at St. Elizabeth's. She was still there years later when Sharon Chaiklin became her student. We would walk into the unit, and as soon as you walk in, it's like it's happening because you're noticing what's the feel of the, the unit, what's the the tenure is it uh, tense or is it relaxed? Is it noisy? Is it are people talking to each other? Are they isolated? At that time, you carried a big, heavy record player <laughs> and records, and you kind of set up your table with your record player and you put on some music. And Chase would always start with a waltz. She said the waltz is a good thing to start with because. People don't have their own special memories of particular music. Waltzes are kind of bland, and they can be boring, but nothing much more than that. And it's a good thing to start there. And so that's what she usually did. To put on something different than a waltz, the first time I did it, I kind of looked over my shoulder, waiting for Marion Chase to come and say, What are you doing? (laughs) Can you just bend your knees? Relax a little bit to it. Let your arms swing a little. Dance has always been part of my life. I, as a as a young child, I just danced. It was just what I did, and I think part of it had to do with the fact that I wasn't particularly verbal, and so dance was a very important part of my being able to express whatever feelings I had at any time. All right, get, just get the feet going a little bit. Get the rhythm. Chaiklin got her first formal dance training in college at Sarah Lawrence in New York. She went in wanting to be a social worker and came out with a degree in modern dance. The basis of, of my future work in dance therapy came at that time because as I went through the process of learning about dance and dancing, I found that I was changing myself personally. She learned how dance could be transformative. Once you start moving in your body, you, there's nothing that separates you from yourself. It is you. And to be able to, um, to move in ways that, that are unfamiliar to you begins to change the sense of who you are. I mean, to move through space really is a very aggressive action, and not everybody can do it comfortably. And as you, um, you know, got very much into dance therapy and, and helped other people, did you feel like your relationship to dance was, was changing or evolving or it was, it was still, you know, affecting your life personally and not just 
the people who you were working with? For the first several years, I could not go to a dance performance because it felt so um, not real to me compared to what I was seeing from the people I worked with. Uh, but finally, I was able to distinguish between that and, and performance. And I did continue to take dance classes for myself. She continued working as a dance therapist into her 60s and was performing dance into her 70s. Dance is one place that you can't keep, well, you can keep going quite a while, actually, as I did. Since Chaiklin started practicing dance therapy 50 years ago, a lot has changed in the field. These days, there are seven colleges and universities in the United States offering graduate programs, and there are more than 1,000 registered dance therapists working in the country. After all, Chaiklin says, dance can reach just about anybody. Anybody, everybody, everybody has a body. I'm Jacob Fenston. After the break, one man's lifelong pledge to make sure we never forget. Sooner or later, we're going to be gone, and it is important that we send our message to people who will be around much longer. That's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're bringing you stories of Washingtonians who've been contributing to their communities, often for many years, and not necessarily with a whole lot of formal recognition or praise. We're calling today's show Lifetime Achievement, and the achiever we'll meet next is 92-year-old Robert Baer, who's making his mark by shining a light on one of the darkest moments of the 20th century, the Holocaust. Emily Berman brings us his story. Once a month, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum holds a meeting for a select group of volunteers, the survivors. They gather in one of the museum's conference rooms, chatting over lunch and listening to announcements. Among them is Robert Baer, who shows up every single Friday to volunteer. He gets a ride from his home in Gaithersburg all the way down to the National Mall and hops out at the museum. From the very beginning... I was committed to share my story for those who are interested, and that hasn't changed at all. Eighty years ago, when Bear was 12 years old, he and his parents were evicted from their apartment. We received a letter, I think it was November of 1938, and these guys had the nerve to write that the Aryan renters in this apartment building can no longer accept the fact that they have to live with a Jew under the same roof. His family spent the next four years hiding in an elderly woman's home. In 1942, they were arrested and sent to Theresienstadt, a labor camp. 
Barrett was assigned to transport bodies of fellow Jews for burial. He was working in the camp kitchen when it was liberated three years later. It was when he immigrated to the United States a few years later that he first began talking about what he experienced. I uh, taught at the uh, University of Dayton, Ohio, and they had a speaker's bureau. And since I'm a fairly decent speaker, I volunteered and uh, they assigned me to various groups to speak about the Holocaust and World War II. Decades later, he continues to tailor his story for every audience to make sure they get something out of it. You need to be very careful that whatever you say is meaningful. If it isn't meaningful, then you're wasting your time. They need to go home and say, boy, I really learned something. Most of the kids I'm talking to, the younger ones, they're always very polite, I must say that. And, uh, but that doesn't mean that they absorbed uh, the, the enormity of the, of the Holocaust where six million people got killed for no other reason that they were the wrong religion and didn't choose their parents very well. Diane Saltzman is the director of the Survivor Affairs Program at the museum and works with a group of 90 survivor volunteers. She says eyewitness testimony, like Bears, is fundamental to the museum experience. It cements something about their visit to the museum that almost nothing else can. We know that, that right now we are the last people who will be able to have personal one-on-one encounters with Holocaust survivors. Robert Baer travels around the country on behalf of the museum to speak about the Holocaust. He's told his story hundreds of times. We won't be around forever. Most of us are in the 80s and 90s, and unless we can install the dedication in the younger people who can carry our message after we are gone, then we'll be lost. So when a 16-year-old high schooler sent him an email just the other day... She got my name, and she wants to know if she can interview me. The girl's assignment was a quick turnaround, but Bear said, okay. I told her I'd talk to her on the telephone, and then I'll answer as many questions as I can. It's one more chance, he says, to share what happened to him, so that we never let it happen again. I'm Emily Berman. If you'd like to hear the stories of other Holocaust survivors, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum has a podcast featuring interviews with scores of people sharing their memories of that era. We have a link with more information on metroconnection.org. The Man We'll Meet Next has racked up an impressive series of firsts. In 1962, he became one of the nation's first African-American park rangers. And nearly 40 years later, he was called out of retirement to serve as the director of the National Park Service under then-President Bill Clinton, making him the very first African-American to hold that position. 
Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson met up with Stanton at Lincoln Park on Capitol Hill in the shadow of the Mary McLeod Bethune Memorial to talk about how Stanton got his start in public service and how the Park Service and the country have changed since then. I uh, first worked with the National Park Service while I was still in undergraduate school. I attended a uh, historically black university uh, in Austin, Texas, and uh, I was on the campus at the time that I was recruited for a uh, seasonal park ranger in Grand Teton National Park. And I might add that that was only made possible through the courageous leadership of then Secretary of the Interior, the Honorable Stuart Lee Udall. And this was in 1962, which uh, predated the Civil Rights Act of 64. So uh, he took the initiative well in advance of the uh, Civil Rights Act. You, again, have had a long career. One of the things that you are known for is advocating diversity in the civil workforce and, and obviously in the Park Service. You've accomplished a lot. As you look back in Austin or back in Wyoming even, do you see yourself as a young man and say, I was, I was aiming for these things? To the latter point that you made, no, I was not aiming for these things. <laughs> I grew up in uh, segregated Jim Crow, Texas, in which there were limited opportunities, educationally employment, access to uh, public accommodations and what have you. So the, uh, the outlook on uh, new careers, if you will, were very limited. But I was given the opportunity uh, to be one of the first African-Americans selected as a park ranger in some of our great national parks uh, under the leadership of Stuart Udall. And that widened my uh, view about career opportunities. But I must also submit that uh, there was a lot of encouragement and a lot of help along the way. And the faculty and the administrators, and particularly the president of the college at that time, Dr. J.J. Seabrook, uh, really encouraged me to accept this new opportunity uh, as a seasonal ranger and that provided an opportunity for me to look at the National Park Service as a career agency. Needless to say, it's been a long time since you started your first Very job. Very long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've seen a lot of changes, not just in the agency or the, the Department of the Interior or, or uh, the National Park Service, but I imagine throughout the country. Do you still feel the same? I know a lot of people talk about, well, you know, I still feel like I was when I was 25 years old. Do you still feel the same way? I still feel the same way, but the old body doesn't perform in the same way. Uh, I continue to stay excited about the uh, opportunities and the experiences afforded by the National Parks and the National Park Service. Uh, So I hope that I will continue to be able to make some contributions uh, in uh, academia and work with civic organization, in particular a youth organization, and creating a better understanding between all of our citizens with the richness of our national parks. But I must also tell you that what has kept me motivated uh, is that the growth of the national park system, uh, which now is constituted by uh, 401 parks uh, from the South Pacific to Maine, from Alaska to the U.S. Virgin Islands, But from a personal perspective, uh, what has kept me motivated, continue to keep me motivated, is the recognition of the contributions that African Americans have made uh, uh, to this country. When I first donned the Park Service uniform in Grand Teton National Park in June of 1962, there had only been three areas authorized by Pacific Act of Congress commemorating the contributions of African Americans. It was Booker T. Washington in uh, Virginia, Joy Washington Carver, his birthplace in Missouri, 
and the authorization for the National Council of Negro Women to construct this memorial to Dr. Bethune. But proudly today, there are now 28 areas in the national park system that specifically commemorate African Americans or major events associated with African Americans, such as Selma to Montgomery Historical Trail, Brown versus Board of Education, Little Rock Central High School, Tuskegee Airmen. All of those uh, have continued to give me a great deal of inspiration because the hand-me-down textbooks that I had as a youngster growing up in segregated Texas did not reflect our rich contribution. That was Robert Stanton, former head of the National Park Service, talking with environment reporter Jonathan Wilson. And now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week on Door to Door, we'll visit Herndon, Virginia, and the King Farm neighborhood of Rockville, Maryland. My name is David Lewis, and I currently reside in the King Farm neighborhood. We were actually the second family to move into King Farm. We moved in in June of 1998. King Farm is a planned urban development on the northern edge of Rockville, Maryland. We're probably a 30 or 40 minute drive from uh, Washington, D.C., and we're right off of exit 8 on 270. This used to be a working dairy farm that was owned by the King family, and then the property was sold to a real estate developer and it was set up as a planned urban development, mixed use. We have a rule from our community association that if your house faces the park, it's required to have a front porch. This is a porch and deck community. Lots and lots of entertaining and social interactions take place on porches or decks or yards. We don't have gigantic lots and McMansions here, but it's a really nice place to live. My name is Harlan Reese. I live in Herndon, Virginia. I live in the historic district of Herndon. We call it the Heritage Preservation District. It's just within walking distance of our old downtown. Herndon was named for Captain Herndon. He was captain of the SS Central America that went down in a storm. There's a, there's a monument, an obelisk, named for him at the Naval Academy, and we have a smaller version of that on our town green which uh, we put up some years ago, and we hold our annual uh, Veterans Day ceremony at that monument. One of the things that drew us here was, was the house that we currently live in. It's an old historic structure, and that appealed to us because there are other houses like that. The other thing was that Herndon really has a strong sense of community. It, it is a town with its own elected government, so it's that sense of community that uh, that you don't necessarily find if you're just out in the county somewhere else. It'll be the reluctance to leave a place that we've come to really love that would keep us from leaving. We heard from David Lewis in King Farm and Harlan Reese in Herndon. Think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door? Send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And if you want to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, we have one on our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute, celebrating one of DC theater's biggest champions. 
I'm going to be out there getting people to learn to enjoy theater. That and more is coming your way on our Lifetime Achievement Show here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And this week we are paying tribute to some of the more unsung heroes among us with a show we're calling Lifetime Achievement. Earlier, we met a man who served as the National Park Service's first African-American director and from a woman who believes that life is dance and has stayed true to that belief as a pioneer in dance therapy. But the guy we'll honor next on our Lifetime Achievement show might actually take exception to that title, Lifetime Achievement. Now, people ask me if I've been playing all my life. Oh, not yet. <laughs> and what is it Virginia resident Jack Hopkins has yet to play all his life? Here's a hint. This one I carry in my pocket most of the time, and a lot of people in our dining room like to have me play Happy Birthday on it. <laughs> yes, indeed, it's the harmonica. And the dining room, Jack mentions, is at the Westminster at Lake Ridge Retirement Community near Occoquan. The World War II veteran has been retired for a while now, which should come as no surprise since on Easter Sunday. I just celebrated my 94th birthday. Yep, 94th. And Jack started playing the harmonica not long after his sixth birthday. My father and mother dropped into my Christmas stocking, a small plastic harmonica, even had plastic reeds. Jack took to it instantly, and within weeks, his father came home from work and heard me playing Yes or She's My Baby or some other popular tune of the day, and it blew his non-musical mind. (laughs) 88 years later, Jack has a harmonica collection that would blow anyone's mind, including mine. When I arrive at his house, he has three long rows of harmonicas lined up on a blanket. Oh, my goodness. Is this all of them? Oh, that's pretty good sampling. That's <laughs> it pretty good. How many are we dealing with here? One, two, three. I don't know four, how many five. I own. <laughs> he guesses it's probably somewhere in the hundreds and includes more than 15 different types, from tiny harmonicas like the one he uses for Happy Birthday. It's just a little over an inch, about an inch and a quarter, I think. To much larger ones. The big one down there, the big 48 chord harmonica, is just under two feet long. He has chromatic harmonicas with their signature push-button slide. And when you push that in, every note goes up a half a tone. He has paddle wheel harmonicas, which are actually several harmonicas put together in a paddle wheel shape, each one in a different key. So we start with C and work up. But the instrument Jack rocks the most has got to be... The double-decker bass. And with this one, you played both the top and the bottom in one song. Yes, because the sharps and flats are up here, and the natural notes are down below. The bass harmonica is an all-blow instrument. So while many harmonicas will give you different notes, depending on whether you're blowing... Exhaling or drawing, inhaling. With the bass, you only get notes when you blow or exhale. 
And for anyone, let alone a 94-year-old man, that's no small feat. So I have to ask, what is it about the harmonica that has kept you captivated all these years? Well, for one thing, it's kept me breathing. <laughs> Let's do one more on your bass, Jack. We'll see if you're going to turn blue in the face. We're going to do California, Here I Come. My interview with Jack falls on a Tuesday night. So after viewing his collection, we drive to Wesley United Methodist Church in Alexandria. That's the weekly meeting place of the Capital Harmonica Club, which Jack founded in 1991. <laughs> he didn't turn blue, so it worked out okay. <laughs> this is fellow club member Frank Jameson. I'll be 82. Yeah, 82. So harmonica does keep you young. Yeah, well, I swim every day, too. (laughs) That keeps them clean. Yeah, that keeps me clean. (laughs) As you can hear, Frank and Jack have quite the rapport after playing together at so many meetings and gigs, from senior homes to civic organization gatherings. We go back 20 years, I don't know. 24? 24, yeah. And both men can remember a time when this little church classroom was bursting with harmonica devotees. I meant to bring my picture. We had about as many as 13 or 15 people in the club. And uh, And now how many? uh, we're, We're lucky to get two or three. The picture, Frank mentions, was taken in 1998 when the club appeared on the local TV news. Nowadays, though, most of those members are either unable to drive, their eyesight is failing, or they're just not with us anymore. But at this week's meeting, there's some new blood in the room. Cliff Daniels, a recent retiree and a harmonica rookie. This is probably my fourth time, and I'm going to push myself to the level in which I want to go and have a harmonica in my pocket and take it out and start playing if I want to. And they are definitely, you know, when, when I found out his age, and now you're telling me your age, I feel there's a lot of hope for me. <laughs> One of Frank and Jack's favorite things to do is harmonize. When Jack's on bass, he's providing a rhythmic percussive element. But when both men are on chromatic harmonicas, Jack plays counterpoint to Frank's melody. Jack works harder than I do. I'm really going to see if he had his Wheaties today. I'm gonna, we're going to play uh, Lullaby of Birdland. In addition to jamming with Frank, Jack Hopkins has also kept himself busy reading about harmonicas. One of his favorite books, by the way, is Al Smith's Confessions of Harmonica Addicts, as well as attending harmonica conventions and teaching harmonica. But my wife kind of put a halt to that because I wasn't spending enough time with my seven kids. Seven, right. So you see, I didn't play harmonica all the time. So he did eat his Wheaties. He's breakfast of champions, guy. <laughs> He'll be on the Wheaties box next year. <laughs> Want to see Jack Hopkins and Frank Jameson jamming on the harmonica? We have photos from a meeting of the Capital Harmonica Club, as well as information about the club itself on our website, metroconnection.org.
We'll turn now from music to theater as we introduce a man who's pretty much become the local theater scene's cheerleader-in-chief. Until recently, Victor Shargai was board chair of Theater Washington. That's the organization that promotes local stages and hosts the annual Helen Hayes Awards. Earlier this year, Shargai actually took home a Helen Hayes Award himself. It was a special tribute recognizing his many years of work on behalf of area theaters. Here's a snippet from the video that accompanied the honor. He has promoted it like no other. He has supported it like no other. He brought other people to the theater, and he actually made the family bigger. He brings in groups of children that normally couldn't afford to go to the theater, along with their parents. Lauren Landau recently met up with Victor Shargai and asked how his love affair with the theater began. Oh, this this is a, a shrink and a couch question. The reason... I suppose, well, I really had the moment when I was eight years old. My sister was taking dance lessons in Jamaica, New York, at a little storefront dance studio. And I said, I can do that. Why can't I take lessons? So I was allowed some lessons. And I was discovered very early on, and there was a recital for the school. And I did Chattanooga Shoeshine Boy, sang and danced. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was a, a wonderful moment, and I heard the applause, I saw the light, and I was home. And I started, right after that, going into New York and auditioning on my own for shows. Of course, your career did take you from New York to D.C., yes. and, and you spent many, many years advocating for D.C. theater. Yes. Can you talk a bit about your passion for local theater here in D.C., and how have you seen the theater scene change? Well, that was exactly 50 years ago that I came to Washington. I followed my heart here. My uh, partner of um, many, many years moved here uh, for a big job, and I had had some problems in the theater at the time, Uh, fell down the steps, wasn't able to work. My apartment caught on fire, and I said, this is a sign I'm leaving New York. I came to Washington, and I thought I would have nothing to do with theater. I would go to theater, but there was nothing else for me. And there were two or three theaters. I had a subscription at Folger. I had a subscription at Arena. I went to the pre-Broadway shows at the National Theater. I just found that people didn't know about theater in Washington. People weren't interested in theater. And several years after I got here... I was introduced to a small theater on Church Street, a hole in the wall, literally, and it was a production of the 5th of July at Studio Theater, their first home. And I was blown away by the talent in this small, small theater where there was one bathroom and hopefully it was working. And I thought, well, there's something in this, and I accepted to join the studio board. And it was when 14th Street was a terrible, terrible place. It wasn't many years after the riots. There were prostitutes all over the streets, drug paraphernalia. My car was broken into twice, windows smashed. And when Joy Zinneman wanted to get my friends to come to her theater, I said, my friends aren't going to come to your theater. Move it to Bethesda. I I can't believe I said that, but I did. And she said, no, never. I'm not going to leave here. And that was the beginning of it. What are you most proud of? I'm proud of what we did to become Theater Washington. I think it was a great moment for the area. 
I'm also very proud of convincing people to give. I have a gene from my father where I love to entertain and I love to make people happy. And I think they can be happy by giving away their money to the theater. And also, you know, one great thing we've done, I think, is the change in the demographics in Washington theater. Adele Roby and her daughter, Julia. Adele originally opened the H Street Playhouse Northeast, and the Atlas Center opened there with Jane Lang and Paul Spranger giving their heart and soul to make it happen. And you go there, and it is so exciting. And you see these people going into a theater for the first time. It's an incredible experience. And now... The H Street Playhouse is closed. The Atlas is still there, but they've opened the Anacostia Playhouse. It is remarkable. I was there for a um, play, and there was a talk back afterwards. And to see the people in that audience, intelligent, bright people who wouldn't cross the river to go to the theater talking about the play, well, they might cross the river now. And that's what I want. I want to get the kids who haven't been to a theater. I want to get them in. I want to get the people in the seniors' home who at their later stages in life have never been to a theater. And I want them to, to get there, and I want them to see what's great and enrich their lives. That's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be kind of an emissary in the trenches, getting people to learn to enjoy theater. That was Victor Shargai, the former board chair of Theatre Washington, speaking with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau. So most of the people we've met this hour have pursued their passions without spending a whole lot of time in the spotlight. But not so much for the woman we'll meet next. Back in the mid-1990s, Tanya Pointer enjoyed several years of national fame as a rapper. Lauren Ober brings us Pointer's story and finds out how she defines achievement today. It's a nippy 40 degrees in the meat-cutting room of the Save-A-Lot grocery store on Rhode Island Avenue Northeast. Butcher Tanya Pointer is making quick work of a side of pork, slicing the meat into evenly sized chops. Pointer is dressed in a long white coat, like a doctor. She has a black beret covering her hair and a couple of pairs of gloves protecting her hands. Her nose won't stop dribbling from the cold. Yeah, it's days when we have on everything and we see our breath and it's cold and we're moving and we're freezing. But instead of dreading work because of the cold or the simple fact that she's cutting meat all day, Pointer actually looks forward to it. I love this. I love what I do. I mean, definitely. When you're blessed to have a job that you like, I mean, a job is a job. Nobody wants to work a job, but I really, really love cutting meat. And it has a lot to do with who I cut meat with. You know, I love my team. I work with some really incredible people. We have a ball every single day at work. Part of the reason work is such a blast is that Pointer is always playing music. Today, she was feeling sort of an 80s jam. This is what we banging right now. This is what we listen to right now. Hold on. This is what we banging right now. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, we're on a little Hall of Notes in here right now. Yeah, little Friday Night Video CD I made up. That's what that is. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's what we're at with right now. What I do, my glove? 
Of course Pointer made a music mix for work. Her other job, the one she does when she's not cutting and wrapping meat, is DJing. She spins all over the DMV, from sporting goods stores to car dealerships to downtown clubs. Her DJ name is Nonchalant. I respect DJing. DJing is an art, you know. It's the same thing as performing. You have the same energy. You work really, really hard to get the crowd to be where you want them to go. Nonchalant didn't start off as a DJ. Long before she hit the turntables, the now 44-year-old was arguably the most important female rapper to come out of D.C. In 1996, MCA Records released a song called Five O'Clock, a hip-hop clarion call of sorts about the dangers of the drug game. This was Nonchalant's debut record. It's really real when I feel the way that I do right now. I see all my brothers underground. Five O'Clock was an undeniable hit. It landed on many Billboard charts that year and eventually reached the number one spot on the hot rap singles list. Nonchalant was in good company. LL Cool J, Busta Rhymes, and Tupac also had hits on the chart that year. But Five O'Clock wasn't just a catchy song. It also had a powerful message. I had to be at work really, really early in the morning, and I would see that. Young guys out on the corner, you know, selling drugs. You knew what they were out there doing. It was rain, sleet, shine, snow. They were there, and I was just like, God, you know, I hope I never see one of my nephews out here. D.C.'s crack epidemic, with its open-air drug markets and brutal gang violence, inspired Pointer to write the song. Drugs have touched everybody's lives. Either somebody's selling it or somebody's on drugs, you know, and it's crossed all timelines and and cultures and everything. It even touched Pointer's life. Her brother-in-law, a recovering crack addict, was shot dead over an old drug beef. That song catapulted nonchalant to stardom. Prominent radio jocks like DJ Flex here in D.C. and DJ Red Alert in New York began playing Nonchalant's record. She got to meet everyone from hip-hop royalty salt and Peppa to the Fugees with whom she toured. She even caught a glimpse of Michael Jackson when they were both recording at New York's famed Hit Factory studio. But as quickly as Pointer's star ascended, it fell. New management at the record label wasn't sure what to do with her, And after months of fruitless discussions about her second album, she left. I asked to be released off the label, and they did. And then it was just figure out what I want to do. You know, taking meetings, talking to a lot of people, stuff not panning out. In regular life happening, you know, your your, your real life is still happening. Your creative life, you're trying to figure it out. I'm not going to be able to sustain myself. I got to go get a job at some point in time. And that's how nonchalant... National recording artist, writer of a hip-hop classic, came to be slinging meat at the Save-A-Lot. Her departure from the public eye might make her a one-hit wonder. But let's face it, that's one more hit than most of us have gotten. If you get that one, that's a blessing. You know what I mean? If you get that one, I have that one that touched people's lives and continued to do that. I would have loved to have had a string of hits and sold millions and millions of records, but I'm extremely happy and blessed with what I did accomplish. What Nonchalant did accomplish was more than a hit record. She forged relationships with artists, producers, and DJs, and she's leveraging those relationships for a new organization called Spin Like a Girl, whose mission is to support women and girls who want to get into emceeing, DJing, and music production. 
plus i'm still nonchalant that you know nobody can take that from me i'm just rapping meat in a different i'm rapping in a different way we talked about it i'm still rapping baby rapping i'm lauren ober well uh mr black man tell me where you're heading the last few years i watched while you were shedding pounds and pounds of growth off the population soon we won't be able to have a strong black nation i shoot here i stab and there but when it stop because now you're down from a dose of the crack rock i'm just a newbie and queen that needs a king to stand strong and try to press on it's not a white And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Lauren Ober, Lauren Landau, Jonathan Wilson, and Emily Berman. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production on the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We have information on all the music we use on metroconnection.org. Just click a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection or by subscribing to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week for an encore presentation of our special hour-long documentary, Crack, the Drug That Consumed the Nation's Capital. We'll revisit the late 1980s and early 1990s when crack turned this town upside down. We'll also look at how what happened back then can be felt in the D.C. of today. A lot of people went to jail for life over what they created and the havoc. People are paying the price for that. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.